a stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Comstock, and welcome to We Happy Few, the podcast that allows veterans and their families to tell their stories. Uh, I'm David Hollingsworth. I was in the Army from 82 uh, to 84 in the Reserves, from 84 through 89. And what made you decide to join the Army? That's a good question. Uh, I come from a a family who has a history of being in the military. I have uh, people in my grandparents' generation who were in World War II, and I have three uncles who uh, served during the Vietnam era. Uh, All three enlisted, two enlisted in the Army, and one went to Bolivia, one went to Thailand as an interpreter. The third one enlisted in the Air Force because he didn't want to go to Vietnam, and he wound up in Saigon. So... um, my brother uh, enlisted as a military police officer, and I went off to college. And the way I ended up in the military, I was in my sophomore year, and I was engaged to a girl who we'd planned to get married after college. And she broke off with me and married my best friend. So instead of doing the rational thing, which would be to move on and finish college, I dropped out of college and joined the Army to get as far away from that situation as I could. So what's going on in the world? Any concerns about what's happening in the world at this time? Well, in 82, there really wasn't a lot going on. I mean, I think they had uh, the Beirut uh, bombing, and I'm trying to fix the year on that. Uh, But there really wasn't a lot going on during that time. Um, When I went through basic training and then was stationed at Fort Belvoir, Virginia, it really was a peacetime military. So I, as far as heroic or dangerous activities, most of it was just driving around the base, you know, writing parking tickets. So I'm guessing your job, you were a police officer or MP? I was was an MP, uh, but the the funny thing about being an MP was I had a two-year enlistment which was the shortest amount I could sign up for and get the significant educational benefits at the time because I wanted to go back to college. And you had to be either infantry, armor, or MP. And I figured MP was the least dangerous. And despite being an MP, I spent about six months of that time being an actual MP because four months of the time I was in basic training at AIT, um, six months on the road as an MP, and then six months of that was a lifeguard at an indoor pool. So because, I'm, I just want to understand. So MPs are also lifeguards? Not in, not as a matter of course. Uh, this was <laughs> this was during the Reagan era, and uh, the economy was in a shambles, and they had a lot of concerns about the federal budget. So they laid off all the contractors, and one day in formation. Uh, you know, the whole thing about never volunteering for anything. Uh, the first sergeant said, who here knows how to swim? And I, before thinking about it, my hand raised up and he said, Hollingsworth, get over to the pool. 
So for the next six months, I was a lifeguard at an indoor pool. That was my job. Wow. Yeah. So, and, so go ahead. And, go ahead. Instead, instead of trying to protect and serve, I was telling people to, you know, one bounce on the diving board and uh, no running on the deck. Wow. So, okay. So what the, what lifelong experiences did you take from that? Well, from the lifeguard experience, not much um, because it was really um, just, just a summer job that anybody would have. What I did take from my active duty experience was we spent, we, we got deployed to Seneca Army Depot uh, during, I think it was 83, summer of 83. There were a bunch of anti-nuclear protests going on uh, at the time uh, because they were talking about pulling missiles out of uh, bases in England. And there happened to be a base in the United States that had a lot of um, ordnance there. So we got deployed to that to deal with the anti-nuke protests. And we were working uh, 12-hour shifts every day, seven days a week, providing security for that, for that event. And one thing that I did take from that experience was that if there's a job, you get the job done. And it doesn't matter whether you um, complain about it or whether you whine about it. There is a job that has to get done, and you are the person who's got to get it done. And that stuck with me all the way through today, especially through some of the other incidents that have happened outside of the military. Do you think that with all of the, um, <clears throat> the discussions currently going on in the media about police and, mm -hmm. and some of their things, do you think that your experience as a, as an MP uh, gives you a different perspective than maybe uh, other folks might have as they look at the news? Well, I think that anybody who is a law enforcement officer uh, or any anything in public safety, uh, you have a fine line you've got to walk between protecting the public um, and self-preservation. So when when I see the the protests going on, I can understand why people protest because there have been incidents of where the police have gone too far. And I, I can understand that. I can also understand the police's um, tendency to hunker down and um, try to reinforce that solidarity uh, amongst the uh, law enforcement community. So it's interesting to see both sides of the issue. Uh, because no matter how much you think of the world in black and white, it really is, depending on your perspective, um, it could be anything. It's like if when you deployed to Iraq, I mean, there are things that you probably thought going in that you found different once you got there. Uh, or maybe perceptions about the people there that may have changed once you got to know them. So... I think the perspective I would take from it, it is, is you, you do try to walk in the other person's shoes and be understanding of what's going on. But also if your mission is to keep the public safe, that's what you do. So now you left active duty and you were a reservist for a time. Yes. I uh, served 82 to 84 on active duty and really other than the deployment to Seneca army depot, 
never went anywhere besides Fort Belvoir. And in fact, for six months, I was a lifeguard. I did not do a lot of army stuff. But when I got out of the army, went back to college, I finished my undergrad degree and went on to grad school and found that, oh, by the way, the Army Reserve will pay for that too. And so I was happy to extend my enlistment through the reserves. And while I was going to school at night, uh, we do our reserve duty uh, one week in a month and two weeks during the summer. And the very first summer, having gone nowhere while I was on active duty, uh, we got deployed to um, Honduras and spent two weeks uh, building. Well, as MPs, we provided uh, security for a road building exercise down there. And instead of 12 hour days, we were working 16 hour days, seven days a week um, and trying to sleep in 105 degree weather. Uh, so I learned a lot about, yeah, you get the job done because there's not much else you can do. Did that change your, your worldview? I think so, because you realize how good we have it here and that most of the world doesn't have it this good. Um, we take a lot of things for granted uh, from just a even even the people who don't have a lot in the United States have a lot more than people in other parts of the world. So it was an eye opening experience. And also, even though I didn't speak a lot of Spanish, it was an interesting exercise to get to know the Honduran soldiers because they were there. And this is again, 1987. So there was a lot of um, fighting on the borders with Nicaragua uh, during, you know, the Sandinista uh, rebellion during that time. So getting to know the people who had a lot more at stake than what I thought I had. Uh, So it was, it was definitely an eye opening experience. I think this is a great time to take a break and hear from the businesses that are making this podcast possible. If you support us and what we are doing, please support them. Hi, I'm Amy Donaldson. And I'm Jason Lee. Listen to our free podcast, Voices of Reason, unless you enjoy screaming matches. Nope, you're not going to hear that with us. You'll hear folks who may disagree, but seek to understand different views. That's Voices of Reason on the KSL Radio app or wherever you find interesting podcasts. Now, you have mentioned that you have had some, some pretty crazy and even funny experiences. What's uh, what's probably the, the one that comes to your mind when you think about funny experiences you had as a result of your military service? Sure. Um, being an MP, a lot of people come and think, okay, I'm going to be a cop. I'm going to be a law enforcement officer. Well, kind of. Uh, we spend a lot of time out in the field because that is really the mission of what an MP does today. Uh but we did a lot of routine law enforcement duties on the post. And being the Reagan era and being the, that we didn't have a lot of budget, instead of having really nice police cars, we had, I think we had an AMC Matador. Uh, we had a Chevy Citation and neither one was in good repair. We also had a bunch of Jeeps and we had a pickup truck that we would slap a magnetic sign that said military police on. One day we get an alarm on the North Post Bank. And 
I'm driving the Matador that day. So I'm turn on my lights. I'm driving down the main road of post to get over to the North post where the bank is with my lights and siren going on. And I see, this is a nighttime. I see a bunch of white light shining on the trees. So I hit the brakes, get out of the car and look and the red bubble that was on top of the car had blown off. and was lying in the road about a hundred yards back. So I sprint back there, get that, throw that in the back seat and go onto the bank. And by that time, the bank is surrounded. Every military police officer on base is surrounding the bank. And as we all make sure that everything is secure, I hear somebody out front say, come out with your hands up. And I look to the front of the bank and there's this poor guy, one arm raised and the other arm raised holding a vacuum cleaner. So evidently the cleaning guy set off the alarm and we responded as quickly as we could. So, but unfortunately for everybody, nobody was in danger. Oh, you'd also have the time where uh, I, I think I pulled somebody over for blowing through a stop sign. And, you know, as, as they rolled down the window and I said, ma'am, do you know why I stopped you? And she said, you can't ticket me. My husband's a lieutenant. <laughs> well, let's, let's, you can discuss that with the local magistrate, ma'am. Uh, we will uh, take care of that later. People put you in a certain um, role if you're in law enforcement, and you put people in a certain role if you think of them as the people you're protecting. And, you know, everything from working the front gate and waving people through, and one day a car pulls up and says, hi, we're the drifters. I'm like, and they were playing at the, the local club. Like, okay, I didn't know I was going to meet the drifters tonight. Uh, <laughs> just stuff like that happened. I, did you continue in the, a career in law enforcement? Uh, no, I didn't. I uh, finished grad school. I uh, did an undergrad in uh, business and information systems, went to graduate school, got my MBA from Xavier University in Cincinnati, and went into IT because I didn't study that during high school or college much. But when I was in the Army, I worked, one of the duties I had was to work the NCIC computer. So I'd be the guy running plates to find out okay, does this person have any wants or warrants associated with them? Is this car properly registered? And I thought, I've kind of got a knack for this. So I went into IT and I've been in IT really since then. If one of your children comes to you and says, hey, I'm thinking about joining the military, what do you tell them? I would say, think about it seriously because of the situation in the world. But if you really want to serve, I will support that. I will tell you the ins and outs of what a recruiter will tell you and what you should actually listen to, but go in with your eyes open and there are a lot of honorable ways to serve and I would support it completely. And with, um, with all of these experiences, you, you mentioned um, to me before we got started that, yep. that you're writing a book. Um, do you want to talk about that book that you have that, that's coming out a little bit? Sure, absolutely. Uh, the book's called Get Out the Door. And it's a story of what happened after the military. Uh, in 2004, I was learning how to ride a motorcycle. And one day when I was just practicing in a local elementary school parking lot, I was doing circles around, doing acceleration, doing braking, doing figure eights and S-turns. And as I was riding across the lot, I hit a patch of sand and started to wobble a bit. And my right hand, which was where your throttle is, 
gripped the throttle and the bike shot forward. And before I could react and get on the brakes and the clutch, uh, the bike hit the curb. I was bounced off and landed with my back directly hitting the curb. I uh, fractured my L2 vertebra. uh, And according to the ER report, it was an explosive fracture of the L2 vertebra on three axes. Uh, My right leg was initially paralyzed. And paramedics came and got me. I was taken to the hospital. I was uh, stabilized for two days before surgery. And before surgery, the doctor said, I don't know if you're going to walk again. Um, I spent three months in the hospital, had to learn to stand and walk all over again, and six months off of work, and I had to wear a TLSO brace, which went from my armpits down to my hips to keep me vertical so that my fusion, because I had a four-level spinal fusion, had to heal. And it took me about a year to get back to being released from treatment and to quote-unquote be normal. Um, I was kind of normal. I could walk. I could uh, do normal things. And it took me another year to learn how to ride a bike again. Uh, and I was pretty happy with that. As I, I could walk. I could ride a bike. You know, life was pretty good. But I got to a point where I wasn't happy with where life was going at that point for me physically. Um, and I gained a bunch of weight and decided that I wanted to do things differently. And so I started walking more, started um, riding more. And I asked my doctor, I said, can I run? He said, yeah, if somebody's chasing you. So I decided to sign up for my first 5K. I figured it'd be some people chasing me. Um, But the first time I jogged, I ran all of 60 feet before I was tired. Um, But over time, I would actually get a little bit further, a little bit further, And got up to my first 5K. And then within about six months of that, I went from a 5K to a half marathon. And I thought, you know, if I can do a half, maybe I can do a full. And in 2014, 10 years after the accident to celebrate the anniversary, in February, I ran up the Empire State Building. I did two sprint triathlons. I rode in a bike race called the Assault on Mount Mitchell, which is 102 miles with 11,000 feet of climbing, all of it in the last 30. So the last 30 miles are all uphill. And if if you go on the web and look at the results for 2014, I am the last official finisher. (laughs) Um, But then I ran the Marine Corps Marathon. Um, And the book is about that journey from the accident through the marathon and what I learned along the way. And the, what I learned along the way was that everybody has obstacles that get thrown in front of them. What, um, what impact do you think your military experience had on that recovery? Well, as I pointed out earlier is if there is a mission, you do the job. And the, during the recovery and especially as I was working towards a marathon, the one thing I learned that made the difference wasn't the long hours of training I had to do or the rest or the eating or whatever I had to focus on. It was doing the job every day and getting out the door. And that's why the book is called Get Out the Door, because once I got out the door, 
the rest was easy. Yeah. And that's what I learned in the military is you've got a job in front of you. There's no debating as to whether you execute that mission or not. You do the job. And so once I did that job every day and got out the door, it got me from jogging 60 feet to running a marathon. Still riding a motorcycle? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I don't ride a motorcycle anymore. I do I do ride a bike. I, I love riding. Um, and I still ride uh, multiple times a week because it just it's, it's nice. It does. It's not hard on you. It's nice to be out there in the wind. And I, I still love doing it, but I thought about going back and getting my license for the motorcycle, but it's one of those things I've decided that that's not what I want to do. Join us again for the next episode of We Happy Few. If you have comments about the show, please contact us by email at tips at loudmouthproject.com or on Twitter at loudmouthjason. Check out our website at loudmouthproject.com and navigate to the We Happy Few page. You can also find and subscribe to free episodes of our podcast on Google Podcast, iTunes, and other places where you find interesting shows. Be sure to review our show as well. We love to get your feedback and it helps grow our audience. We would like to thank our producer and editor, Josh Tilton, and our creative director, Amy Donaldson, for adding the spit and polish to our show. I'm Jason Comstock, and until next time, keep listening, keep looking. Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story, the struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.